0: Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. We're always looking for ways to thank you for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible, and this is one of those ways. We recently reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses, and that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Hi, Jimmy! Howdy, Dom. How's it going? It's going great. I'm looking forward to all of these great questions that we have. Uh, We we got a a real boatload of questions this time. We did. Yeah, (laughs) we got a lot of questions this time, which is great. And one of the things that was
1: nice is people didn't just say, can you do a show on this? Because the answer is usually yes, we can do a show on that, but it may be a while. (laughs) Right. But we got a lot of substantive questions. We want to answer as many as we can, You know, we want to keep the show of reasonable length. So we're going to go for about an hour. And because we want to thank as many as possible, we're going to take the questions on a first come first serve basis with a single question from each person. If you ask multiple questions, that's totally fine. We'll save the additional questions for future shows. And given the number of questions we got this time, we've actually got enough in the question bucket for probably uh, two or three episodes. Um, (laughs) But uh, looking forward to answering these, and we'll eventually get to everybody's questions.
0: Excellent. So let's dive right in. We don't want to waste any time. So our first question comes from patron Nick Wan. Uh, and folks, I'm sorry if I mispronounce your names. I do my best uh, and I understand. Uh, hope you understand because I have the same issue with my name. So Nick Wan says, uh, are there any bounds on the topics mysterious world can cover? I would imagine that things like the flat earth are right out. But I was thinking of the Vikings in North America. And at one time, the Vinland map pretty, probably would have been decent, mysterious world fodder. But I think now it's settled, or is the map itself still mysterious enough? Do you have any guidelines or rules of thumb for stuff like this?
1: Yeah, so the first thing, the first kind of guideline is there needs to be something actually mysterious, at least to most people. And that means we don't generally do like straightforward theological or moral questions, because that's just a matter of reasoning out, Okay, you know, an issue in a fairly conventional way. It needs to be a little more mysterious than that. That's kind of the difference between the questions that we handle here on Mysterious World versus the more straightforward questions that I handle on Catholic Answers Live. So that gives us a really broad range of things we can cover here. There's, you know, needs to be something that is in in at least some degree debatable or at least debated by people. It also needs to be connected with fact somehow, at least ostensible facts. For example, people really do claim the British royal family are a bunch of reptilian aliens. And that theory proposed, among others, by David Icke is something we could discuss here on Mysterious World. But if someone wrote a novel about the British royal family being a bunch of reptilian aliens, the novel wouldn't be something we'd cover because it's presented as the realm of fiction, rather than the realm of fact. So we've occasionally had questions like, could you do an episode on Lord of the Rings or Narnia or something like that? And that would really belong in one of SQPN's other pop culture podcasts. Here, we want to focus on things that at least people are claiming to be real, whether they are or not. A third guideline is I don't typically want to handle current highly political controversies. You know, like, was there Russia collusion or did Hillary do this or that? Because those are current. Those are political. And frequently, we don't have enough information because it takes a while for things to come out. I would be open to doing older historical scandals, you know, like JFK assassination, Watergate, Iran-Contra, but more recent stuff. Probably the most recent thing would be like nine eleven. But it needs to be something that's not a current political hot button, and it needs to be something that we have some information about. In terms of uh, the topics that Nick mentioned, actually, uh, Flat Earth is uh, a mystery we're going to be looking at because it's a phenomenon. The belief in Flat Earth is a phenomenon that has grown in recent years. Because of uh, the Internet, there are conspiracy ideas connected with it, and so that puts it in our realm. And in fact, it's currently scheduled to be episode 68, which is coming up in just a few weeks uh, from the perspective of when we're recording this. If you're listening to the public release of this episode is 78, then it will already have been released. But if you're one of our patrons listening to it right now, we have Flat Earth coming up. And uh, Vinland map is also on the list for the future.
0: Excellent. Uh, John Guibo, uh says, Jimmy, why were ancient astronaut theories so captivating to people? And then she says, love the podcast.
1: I think there are two reasons that two key reasons why the ancient astronaut stuff really took off in the 70s. One is it involved extraterrestrials. And two, it involved ancient stuff. And both of those are things people find fascinating. If it's extraterrestrial, people find it fascinating. If it's ancient, people find it fascinating because it's more mysterious. There was also a kind of superficial plausibility to uh, a lot of the claims regarding ancient astronauts. You know, we had these ancient inscriptions that you could interpret as, "Ooh, that sounds kind of like an alien there were descriptions of things, uh, you know, like pictures that you could look at and say, "Ooh, this Mayan carving looks like a guy in a space chair on a rocket <laughs> ship. And and then there were things called parts or out of place artifacts that seemed to be technology that shouldn't have or the products of technology that shouldn't have existed in the ancient world, things like the Baghdad battery and stuff like that. And we will be talking about all that in the future. But mm-hmm. I think that that's basically why it's the two exotic things: extraterrestrials and antiquity, coupled with the superficial plausibility of some of the evidence that was presented for the thesis.
0: Jimmy, do you think any of it was related to in the seventies and the sixties? Even uh, a, a, a move away from having God and religion as an explanation for why in the world uh, so so a sort of um, secularization might have played into it.
1: I think that's part of it. Also, just the rise of UFO culture in general at the time and, you know, a a variety of different factors. Okay,
0: Uh, I want to move right along to Bob McWilliams, who asks, says a a question for both of you, not so mysterious, but a get to know you question to have fun with. So he asks, what fantasy slash science fiction language would you most like to learn and why? And examples, Tolkien's Orcish, Elvish, Klingon, Jawa, Droid. And another one would be what fantasy slash science fiction book would you like to have and why? Uh and examples Encyclopedia Galactica from the Foundation series, the Orange Catholic Bible from Dune, etc. So, Jimmy?
1: Well, um, I would say of the languages I would most like to learn Vulcan. The powers that be have permitted licensing of the Klingon language, and that's been well fleshed out. They have not done so for Vulcan, which is st- startling, given the popularity of Vulcans. There was, back in the 70s, a little Vulcan dictionary that a little tiny small press came out with, but it wasn't developed as a full language and it subsequently hasn't been uh, licensed in the same way. But that would be the one I would be most interested in learning, simply because it's a bit more mysterious at this point. In terms of what fantasy book I would like to have. I'm tempted to say the Necronomicon, but actually that would probably be a bad idea. Uh, Also, the King in Yellow would not be a good idea. But if I set those aside, I would say the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because, you know, it's mostly harmless. (laughs) Uh,
0: So if I were to answer this, I would say, what languages would I like to learn? Tolkien's Elvish languages like Kenya, uh, Quenya, I forget how he pronounces the Q-U, or Sindarin. In fact, I tried years ago. I I got some uh, fan books uh, before the movie, long before the movies. Now with the movies, they've really developed the language. And so there's really something to to learn there. Uh, I may come back to that someday. I don't know. I'm I'm of an age where learning languages is more difficult than it used to be. For the book, I would say, well, at my first glance, I'd say Red Book of Westmarch from Tolkien's Middle Earth. But of course, I, I own that. Actually, it's called The Lord of the Rings and it's sitting on my shelf in a, a one volume red leather edition. Uh, so I have that already. So I would say the Jedi manuals from The the, the Last Jedi, the ones that Ray saved from the uh, fire, tr- the tree that uh, Yoda mm. set on fire. So that would be my my choice.
1: By the way, you mentioned something there that is interesting about does age affect our ability to learn languages? Mm-hmm. And the common perspective is that it does that that as we become adults, we lose some of the language plasticity in our brains. I'm personally not convinced that's the case. Oh. I think I think it does get harder to learn accents, to learn new sounds, like if there's a sound that it doesn't exist in your language, it's harder to learn that as an adult. That's like why Japanese people sometimes have difficulty distinguishing between L and R. It's also why English speakers have difficulty distinguishing between two different kinds of P sound that are distinguished, for example, in some languages in India, but not in English. Huh. One of the P's is more breathy than others. You can than the other. You can hear both of them in the word pop. One of them is breathier than the other. Okay. But English speakers normally don't distinguish those. So we have the Japanese LR thing. It's just for us, it's two Ps. But while I think it is harder for the adult brain to encode new phonemes, new sounds, I'm not convinced that that's the case for learning vocabulary or grammar. I've experimented with learning, you know, a variety of different languages to an extent. And I think that. That actually, adults and children are pretty similar in their ability to learn vocabulary and grammar. The difference is when you're a toddler, you are completely dependent on other people to do things for you, and you have no way of asking them to do those things unless you learn the language. And those two factors create a high motivation mm. to learn the language. But if you took an adult, and disabled them so they couldn't do things for themselves and had no way other than learning a new language to get things done, they would be highly motivated to learn new vocabulary and grammar.
0: Right. Like dropping them into a foreign place with no one speaks your language and where they can't move around and do stuff for themselves. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so new language. Woohoo! I'm going to learn one. All right. So our next question comes from Richard Vega, uh, who says, I've heard people say the U.S. government has protocols in place for first contact. If this is true, do we know what they are and how close are both old and new movies in accuracy? I guess we don't have
1: there has been work done in this area. Back in uh, the uh, 1950, I believe there was a military uh, paper that the military, U.S. military came up with called Seven Steps to Contact that uh, involved determinations of, OK, once we detect alien intelligence, what do we do? The general plan was sit back, figure out if they're smarter than us, if we're smarter than them or if we're kind of equal. And if they're not way smarter, than, if they're not smarter than us, begin remotely surveilling them and potentially even start collecting specimens from their planet, including them. So start abducting the aliens <laughs> <laughs> and and figuring out their defense capabilities and stuff. In, uh, in the 1960s, there was a report known as the Brookings Report, uh, which also took a look at this. And then more recently, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, has a Declaration of Principles that they've come up with. It's not official government policy, but it is kind of the recommended policy by the people who are actually looking for aliens. In terms of what secret protocols may exist, well, they're secret. I don't know. I did see there was a show, a, a number, I, I think movies and TV shows are probably pretty, r- include the same possibilities that people have already thought of, you know, like be quiet for a while, don't necessarily immediately tell everybody, approach contact gingerly, you know, things like that. I did see a show a few years ago, I believe it was just called Invasion. And I may I may have that wrong. There were two very similar shows on at the same time. One of them starred Brent Spiner in a supporting role. And the series was based around a contingency planner who she had come up with like dozens and dozens and dozens of contingency plans for different disasters that could happen, including alien invasion. Oh, I know what it was. It was called Threshold. And and so in the pilot episode, they like wake her out of bed in the middle of the night, tell her one of her contingency plans has been activated. She says, which one? And they say Threshold. And that's the the initial breach of a potential alien invasion. Hmm. And then as the series was going to progress, the second season was going to be called Foothold, meaning a substantial alien invasion presence. And then the final third season was going to be called Stranglehold. So you could imagine how things (laughs) were going to go in the process of dealing with this alien invasion. Yeah. But one of the things I loved about that show was at, at various points, they're like disappearing people who've had contact with aliens and maybe been compromised by the aliens. And a government official says to the contingency planner, how many people do you think you can just disappear without anyone noticing? She says
0: 300. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's that is creepy <laughs> <That's good. laughs> oh wow okay so uh moving on to the next question uh, john scrivo asks what do you think about carbon monoxide poisoning as a theory for Dayatlov pass well, first of all, we're
1: uh, probably going to have a Dyatlov Pass update in the future because there's a new uh, examination of the Dyatlov Pass incident being done in Russia right now. So we're going to want to update people once there are results from that. In terms of the idea that uh, they got carbon monoxide poisoning in the tent due to their wood wood stove, and that led to them being dazed and confused, it's possible but and wood fired stoves can generate carbon monoxide and can fill up a tent if they're not properly ventilated but i would think before carbon monoxide poisoning would set in on them if there was a leak it would be it would have been leaking smoke all all throughout the tent too and i would think the smoke would have driven them to cut their way out before they got carbon monoxide poisoning how so it's a possibility but i don't i don't think it's the only possibility
0: okay Uh, Joel Kolb says, uh, a lot of the following words get tossed around in Catholic theology and philosophy, and some seem to overlap in their definitions. Could you give a brief definition of the words will, intellect, heart, soul, and mind? Are these terms deemed arcane by modern psychologists or brain scientists? And if so, why? So the term will
1: refers to the capacity to make choices. Intellect, on the other hand, is the capacity to know things, to figure things out. Heart is usually, historically, is used as a a synonym for the center of one's being. In a spiritual sense, it's often used as just a synonym for mind, uh, including both the intellect and the will. So if you if you read in the Bible about someone said in his heart, that's a reference to their interior mental monologue that we have in our mind. Historically, some cultures thought that we thought with our hearts that the heart rather than the brain was the seat of the mind. One reason for that is because our heart can be affected based on our mental moods. If you get excited, your heart may skip beats. Mm. Uh, or speed up. If you're relaxed, your heart may slow down. And people in the ancient world noticed that and they said, hmm, heart is correlated with mental phenomena. Therefore, maybe it's the seat of the mind. Soul can mean different things in theology. It can refer to the immaterial part of a man. It can refer to the entire man. And it can refer to the life principle of the body. So it can mean a number of different things in terms of are they considered arcane uh, by modern psychologists or brain uh, scientists? The answer is not the only one that uh, that, well, heart is definitely considered kind of obsolete. I mean, we still use it for historical linguistic reasons, but it's just a synonym for mind. Now, people don't really think your heart is the center of your consciousness. Uh, That's been known for some centuries. It, the other one that will be uh dismissed by some but not all psychiatrists and brain scientists is soul some of them are materialists and will say there's no such thing as a soul others though are not are not convinced of that and you will find psychiatrists who will talk about maybe our consciousness is not strictly tied to our body maybe it has a non local element that can survive death. So hmm. you will find people saying that. The other faculties will intellect and mind are still used and considered topics of active interest at present.
0: Interesting. All right. Uh, Jimmy Chappell says, greetings, Jimmy and Dom. I've decided to double my pledge following your recent calls for support. I hope awesome. This- thank you. Yes. Thank you, Jimmy. I hope this helps you get uh, gets you closer to the financial breakeven point. To my question. With advances in technology, I see the premise of the video game Deus Ex slowly becoming reality. It would appear mass-market transhumanist tech is less than a generation away. Herring implants, augmented reality devices, mechanical legs, and even primitive brain-computer interfaces already exist. What moral criteria should Catholics weigh when considering biological upgrades? Is augmenting one's body for non-medical reasons completely off the table? I would say, no, we can
1: do things already that enhance physical abilities. For example, you can wear night vision goggles if you need to see in the dark. There's no problem with wearing night vision goggles. The only question is, then, could you take night vision goggles and or a smaller equivalent of them and embed them in your eyes? so that you don't have to carry around the night vision goggles and put them on and stuff like that. So that would be essentially a convenience thing. But if it's okay to use night vision goggles in principle, then I wouldn't see a problem in principle with embedding them for reasons of convenience. Same thing when it comes to like we use uh, hard drives to carry around information, and I don't see in principle a problem with embedding a hard drive to help someone carry around information but they're uh, simply saying it's conceivable in principle as morally licit doesn't mean that there aren't moral considerations you need to number 1 not be causing greater harm than good you know like if you destroy your daylight vision by installing night vision things or if you give if you cause infection by embedding night vision things or a hard drive or you give people access to st- your private thoughts by embedding a hard drive or create a vulnerability to viruses of the electronic sort by embedding a hard drive, all of those would be problematic. and so there's a there's a cost benefit analysis that has to be done. just like embedding devices now. I mean, some people have pacemakers or insulin pumps that can be hacked, but it's it it's often better for the person to have the pacemaker or the insulin pump, even knowing that it can be hacked than not having it. So, you know, that's uh, something that has to be weighed. Another thing that would have to be the case, another moral consideration is the implants must not lead to the death of the original. You get into the Darth Vader problem of he's more man, he's more machine than man now and at some point you could become so much machine that you're basically dead and mm. that would be immoral also the use of these implants must not create greater uh, grave social disorders like a technological superclass of rich people who can afford them and then drive everyone else into subjugation and poverty uh, you know, that, there need
0: yeah that was mm-hmm. i think the plot of a recent uh, netflix series called altered carbon which was a similar thing. They were the uh-huh. rich were essentially immortal, and were using the subclasses to to generate to keep them going, basically. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. So it can't lead, it lead to grave social disorders like that. If uh, Jimmy, if you want more information on this, check out episode two of
0: Mysterious World, which was on transhumanism. Excellent. Uh, Luis Pablo de Valle says, "I've been reading on Alexander's tomb and the Amphipolis one." What does Jimmy think about it? I've heard wild theories like Mark's bones venerated in Venice are really from the Macedonian emperor. Love to hear your thoughts on this whole thing.
1: So uh, we're talking about Alexander the Great, who was a a conqueror from uh, Macedonia, and he lived in the 300s BC. He conquered huge tracts of land as far as India. And at that point, his troops said, we've had enough conquering for now. And he ended up dying in Babylon in Iraq. And scientists aren't really exactly sure of why he died. It was at a very young age. It was very sudden. And as he was dying, the legend is he was asked to whom should the kingdom go that he had forged? And he said, to the fittest, meaning Mm -hmm. he was inviting his generals to fight for it. And rather than fight for it they decided to to split it into four pieces and each take a piece. And that was known as the division of Babylon. And there were plans to take his body back to Macedonia for burial. But Ptolemy, one of his generals, hijacked the body and took it to Alexandria, Egypt, huh. a city that Alexander himself had founded. And so the tomb of Alexander ended up being in Alexandria And we even have information about where it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be at the at the um, conjunction of two prominent streets in Alexandria. The problem is we don't we're not one hundred percent sure what the two streets are because it's changed so much since then. There was a a big mausoleum that was built called the Soma or the Body in Greek, because that's where Alexander's body was. If memory serves, his body was like preserved in honey for a time, Hmm. which has antibacterial properties. And it was visited later by Roman figures like Augustus and Caligula. In fact, I think Caligula took his breastplate. Um, But its location was known for a long time. It eventually was lost. There have been a variety of claims that it was rediscovered or moved or might have been somewhere else. One of the claims they uh, just a couple of years ago, they found a massive, very important tomb in Macedonia. And some people thought this might be Alexander's. But the current evidence is that it actually was for a friend of Alexander's rather than Alexander himself, though it was clearly a tomb for a very important person. There have been claims that the bones in Venice that are venerated at, at as Mark's, because Mark was the bishop of Alexandria, that those are really Alexander's bones, but that's not widely believed. And there have been a number of reports of, we found it, but We haven't been able to excavate because it's a mosque now or it's under a mosque. Uh And the current situation is up in the air. But it is a fascinating topic. I I think that the ancient accounts that it's at this intersection in Alexandria are right. We just are most likely right. We just need to figure out which is the right intersection.
0: Too bad they don't have uh, Alexandrian ways or Google Maps of the ancient world. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: well, the the closest actually there is something similar to that. Mm. Uh, Stanford University has a database called ORBIS, and if you go to orbis.stanford.edu, it it's like Google Maps for the ancient world, and you can put in your starting route at your starting city and your ending city, and you can say it's okay to travel by sea or no, I only want to go over land. I mm. want to go the quickest way. I want to go the cheapest way, and it'll calculate your and I want to go at this time of year. And it's like a travel service for the ancient world. It'll calculate the most plausible route for you. Okay. And you can drag (laughs) the route around to make edits and stuff. I went through the Book of Acts and input all of Luke's time and destination information, and they all checked out. So someone, since, since the Orbis database didn't exist in the ancient world, someone... In St. Paul's traveling party, likely Luke himself was keeping a travel diary of everywhere they went and how long it took to get there.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, if anybody's planning a trip in the TARDIS, uh, make sure to check with that uh, website first. <laughs> so, uh, Emmanuel Sholes says, uh, "What do we know of the about the phenomenon of stigmata or other mystic injuries, both within and outside of the tr- Christian tradition?"
1: So stigmata are manifestations of the marks. That's what the word stigma means, is a mark. The marks or wounds of Christ that he received during the crucifixion, that can include nail prints on the hands and, and and on the legs. It can include a spear wound in the side. It can include crown of thorns wounds on the head. And these are most commonly reported in the Catholic tradition. They have been studied, including some recent ones, The bottom line is like other phenomena, phenomena. some of them are real, some of them are fake, and some of them are imaginary. You get a mix of causes for these things. Some of them are genuinely supernatural, not all of them. I don't have a lot of information about mystic injuries in other religions, although there is some information on that that I've encountered, and we'll have a link in the further resources. But this is on the list of future show topics, stigmata and other mystic injuries. Mm, Good one.
0: Uh, Sean Fitzgerald says, uh, Hi, Jimmy, did Jesus ever get sick or experience any physical suffering during his life? And if he did, would it have been redemptive suffering? Or is it only at the point where his passion begins that his suffering is redemptive?
1: So Jesus was born in a non-glorified state such that he was capable of being injured. And we see that obviously in the crucifixion. He got injured to the point of dying. So he could be injured by physical things like nails and blows and puncturing things. So if he could be injured by those, because he's not glorified in, in his earthly life, he could be injured by viruses and bacteria because mm-hmm. they're physical things that attack your cells. This, you know it's on a smaller scale, but in principle, If he's not protecting himself supernaturally, then his physical body would be vulnerable to attack, including by Roman soldiers and dogs and microbes and bacteria. Having said that, Scripture never mentions him getting sick, and it does attribute to him miraculous healing powers. He's the great physician. And so if you're the great physician, even though he chose not to protect himself from Roman soldiers he may have chosen to protect himself from viruses and microbes or sickness in general. So I I can't say for sure one way or the other because we don't have enough data. I can say that unless he miraculously protected himself, he would have potentially been vulnerable to the same causes of sickness that the rest of us deal with. But he may have protected himself in terms of if he didn't and he got sick, would it be redemptive or did the redemption only start at the passion The Catechism of the Catholic Church has a couple things to say about this. If you look at paragraph 518, it says, Christ's whole life is a mystery of recapitulation. All Jesus said and suffered had for its aim restoring fallen man to his original vocation. So all that Jesus suffered had this as its aim. Now, you could say, The catechism is using a restricted universe of discourse, and it's only talking about the passion narrative. But that's not suggested by the next paragraph, 519, which says, all Christ's riches are for every individual and are everybody's property. Christ did not live his life for himself, but for us, from his incarnation, for us men and for our salvation, to his death for our sins. And resurrection for our justification. He is still our advocate with the Father who always lives to make intercession for us. He remains ever in the presence of God on our behalf, bringing before him all that he lived and suffered for us. So that seems to expand the scope of redemption to Christ's entire life. At least you can argue that it does. And so I would be inclined to say that it's an open theological issue would all of his sufferings in his entire life have been redemptive or uh would only those in the in the final few you know hours of his life have been redemptive or it could be a combination that they're all redemptive in some way but the final bit of suffering in the passion narrative is redemptive in a special way that it that the previous ones didn't fully participate in
0: Okay Joel Lowell says, "Jimmy, are you familiar at all with the lost Dutchman's gold mine? If so, what conclusions do you have about it?
1: Well, I am familiar with it. I have since i been since I was a kid. The lost Dutchman in this case is was a miner named Jacob Waltz who died in eighteen ninety one and he was actually a German." So you might wonder, why is he called a Dutchman in the Lost Dutchman's mind? The answer is because prior to the unification of Germany in 1871, people did not distinguish between, in English between the Dutch and the Germans. And so he was just from this unincorporated area that spoke a Germanic Dutch-like language. I mean, the German word for German is Deutsch. Right. You can hear how much that sounds like Dutch. So prior to 1871, people were not used to distinguishing Germans from Dutch. And so he was called a Dutchman here in America, even though it was from what we would now call Germany. There are various reported locations for uh, his mine and for other similar mines. Uh, it was supposed to be a gold mine, by the way. The story is he was a prospector. He found a rich vein of gold and mined it himself and then died before telling anybody where it was for sure. The proposed locations for this and similar mines are in Western states like Colorado and California and Arizona, where the famous Lost Dutchman mine site is supposed to be in the Superstition Mountains. And there's even a, a state park there, Lost Dutchman Mine State Park. But nobody has been able to find it for sure. And there are questions about how reliable are some of these old accounts? Did this actually exist? A lot of people have searched for it, and we'll talk about it in a future episode.
0: Cool. Uh, Janet Watkins says, Jimmy, what do you know about Vladimir the Impaler and about the Order of Dragon that he founded? So Vlad the Impaler was a ruler in Romania, and he lived
1: between around 1428 and 1477. So he died when he was in his 40s. He was the son of Vlad the Second and Vlad the Impaler. So Vlad the Impaler is the son of Vlad the Second. And v- Vlad the was known as the dragon or Dracul. Uh-huh. And so it was actually Vlad the second that was Dracul. And then his son, the son of the dragon, was Dracula. Hmm. So you add the A and it indicates he's the little dragon. He's the son of the dragon. And so that's why Vlad the Impaler or Vlad the third became the basis of fictional figure Dracula. He had a reputation for being very cruel. Hence, he's known as the Impaler because he <laughs> impaled a lot of people. And he's also, though, sometimes was sometimes considered a national hero. Uh, you know, sometimes people admire their strongman rulers, even if they're cruel. He was not connected with vampirism until Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. It was it was Bram Stoker in the 1800s who made that connection. In terms of where the, the name Dragon or Dracul comes from for his father... It's because his father was a member of the Order of the Dragon. Vlad II didn't found the order, but he was a member of it. And so since he was a member of the Order of the Dragon, he was called Vlad the Dragon or Vlad Dracul. Uh, <clears throat> the actual founder, and by the way, what the Order of the Dragon was, it was a military chivalric order, kind of like the Knights Templar that mm-hmm. we talked about in a previous episode. It was one, another one of these same kind of defense league Military orders, and it was founded by Sigismund of Luxembourg or Sigismund von Luxembourg, who was the king of Hungary in the 1400s. So that's where the name comes from, and that's kind of a general sketch. And yes, of course, we will be talking about both vampires and Vlad the Impaler in the future.
0: Awesome. Ernie Morales uh, says, I recently rolled the credits on a video game that left me with a question. So in sh- I assume that means he won. Yeah, yeah, so rolling yeah. good. Gra- congratulations, Yay. Ernie. Uh, I don't often win my video games. Uh, in short, some guy created robots from the army. A glitch turns into Skynet and humanity is wiped out. While that was happening, a good guy managed to preserve the human genome and we come back. But the bad guy managed to wipe all history from the databases, which was supposed to teach the new generation about the past. So the second wave of humanity has no record of the old civilization. In a setting like this, would you assume Christ would come again to bring back the faith? I This is kind of like, what do you get when you
1: divide by zero? The answer <laughs> is not mathematically straightforward. It's undefined. And I would say and there are various reasons for that. It's tempting to say, oh, you get infinity, but it actually depends on which way, which direction you approach zero from. <laughs> so it's it's more complex than that. And the situation is similar here. We've been told by divine revelation that Christ is going to come back once at the end of the world to save the church from final destruction. And so, if the church had been destroyed, which is what this scenario presupposes, everybody's died and then we're brought back from bottle babies and, and so forth, then I wouldn't expect Christ to return because there's only a to tell everybody about the faith again, because that's not the purpose of the second coming that's been revealed to us. The purpose of the second coming is to judge the living and the dead and bring in the eternal order, not to come back and reannounce the faith. Also and so I wouldn't expect that, but then I wouldn't expect that humanity to have been wiped out either because Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that means the church is still going to be around at the time of the second coming in the end of the world. So the church is not going to be destroyed by bad guys who make skynets. However many bad guys who make skynets there may be, it's they're not going to completely wipe out the church. And therefore, this scenario posits things that are contrary to what has been revealed to us. And once you're beyond what's been revealed to us, you're in a scenario where we don't know what would happen because uh, God could make a universe that's the, where he allows this to happen, but it's not our universe. And we can't reliably predict exactly what would happen in such a universe in a universe where God did not guarantee that the church would survive to the second coming and in a universe where god did not reveal that the second coming would be for purposes of bringing in the eternal order then in that kind of universe christ might return to reannounce the faith but that's not our universe and so i can't really speak to exactly what would happen in such a universe god might or might not choose to have the faith reannounced And if he did, it could be through Jesus or through someone else. He could always re-inspire a prophet and say, hey, guess what? Before the Skynet disaster, there was this guy named Jesus. Let me tell you about him.
0: Right, right. Uh, This is why I don't worry about extinction level events like planet killer asteroids. Because, Ah.
1: well, I worry about planet killer asteroids, not in terms of total extinction, but mass (laughs) extinction (laughs) is still on the table.
0: Yes. So there's a difference between everybody's dead or most everybody's dead. That's sort of like yeah. Princess Bride is only mostly dead. Colin yeah. Mount uh, says, do you believe the daughters of man and the sons of God that intermarry in the book of Genesis is referring to fallen angels laying with human women? Or are the daughters of man the children of Cain and the sons of God the children of Seth?
1: So these are two of the possibilities that have been proposed, that the the sons of God who marry, intermarry with the daughters of men in Genesis are fallen angels, or it's a mixing of the righteous line of Seth with the wicked line of Cain. Those are two of the possibilities. A third possibility that's been proposed is that the sons of God are the ruling class, the priests or kings or priest kings, and they're intermarrying with commoners. And so those are three of the three of the major possibilities. Of course, it's also been proposed that they're aliens because it's It's always always aliens. aliens. (laughs) But I discount the third possibility in terms of the others. It's a current topic of study for me, and we definitely will have a future episode on it. But I am still currently Uh, At the research stage on that, I'm aware of the possibilities. I haven't dug into it as far as I'd like, and I haven't drawn firm
0: conclusions. Uh, Daphne Mitchell says, a mysterious question that stems from a personal experience. Back in the 1970s, I stayed at a hotel in Southern California that sounds very familiar. Uh, that's supposed to <laughs> uh, not the Hotel California because oh, okay. she obviously checked out. Oh yes, okay, that's right, <laughs> and she left. And that's right, she did leave. Uh, but she uh, checked into a hotel in Southern California that was supposedly built over an Indian burial ground.
1: Ooh, and back in the seventies, it was always Indian burial grounds.
0: <laughs> always, yes. I was in my hotel room in the afternoon and had a creepy feeling. I looked over at the bed and it appeared as if an invisible person was walking across it i.e. indentations in the bed that would be produced by a person, if they were visible, at times consistent with someone taking steps. It stopped after a few steps were taken, but the experience stuck with me and led to the following question. What do you think of graveyards and whether there are issues when they are disturbed? Are phenomena in graveyards due to disrespect of the people interred there, or what? Uh, By the way, I got chills reading that. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, OK,
1: I'm I'm tempted to say, well, wait, let's put graveyards to the side. Let's talk about this experience you had. (laughs) And I don't know what that experience would have been. It could have been any number of things, Mm. but it it could be of a piece with phenomena that are reported in graveyards at times. Graveyard like phenomena could be due to purgatorial ghosts. And if you want to you want to. Learn more about that. Listen to episode one on ghosts. So a purgatorial ghost would be someone who's experiencing purgatory and God's allowing them to manifest in our world for a purpose, either as part of their purgation or as a warning or as an invitation to pray for them or something like that could also be demons because it's it's always always demons demons. (laughs) and it could be other phenomena, including natural phenomena that that aren't connected with the deceased at all, including, you know, people's imaginations and stuff like misreports and things like that, hoaxes. So I would say there's a range of possible explanations for mysterious things happening in graveyards, and and they have to therefore be taken on a case-by-case basis. You have to look at the specifics of a particular instance and say, what are the most and least likely explanations for this particular occurrence?
0: I think in general, we should respect all burial grounds, uh, just as a general yeah. principle, and not build hotels on them. <laughs> especially. Well,
1: I, I, I. It's interesting. Different, gr- different cultures have very different attitudes towards how you respect the dead. I have a friend from Malaysia, and in mm. her f- culture, you never mess with a graveyard, no matter what, no mm-hmm. matter how long it's been. Right there, coming though from a Western perspective, and as a perspective of someone interested in Egyptology graves are not totally off limits, right? I would say this is our way of honoring the ancient Egyptians is not by leaving their graves completely alone, but by exploring them and learning about them and their culture. And this is another way of honoring these people. But one way or another, whether you're leaving something alone or whether you're exploring it, the purpose needs to be understanding and honoring what's this these other people not disrespecting these other people.
0: Uh, Just as an aside, I recently read about a culture in, I think, Asia, I think it's Indonesia, where the people dig up their dead relatives and Mm -hmm. bring them to their home on special feasts and holidays, dress them in nice clothes and take pictures with them and have a big party with them. Yeah, it's very creepy to a Westerner, but for them, it's their culture.
1: (laughs) Different strokes.
0: But from my perspective, that's definitely different. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Tim Semler says, "Uh, Hi, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on mindfulness? I'm hearing conflicting Catholic opinions on it. Is it possible to morally and safely practice mindfulness in a Catholic context? with the right intentions. The problem is that the
1: phrase mindfulness is current buzz jargon that's used Mm -hmm. for a bunch of different things. And you really have to say, what are we talking about here? If you just mean something like, I'm going to quiet my mind and relax and, you know, focus on, you know, something in particular. Well, okay being quiet and 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 you know relaxing and focusing your attention is not intrinsically wrong right so you could have legitimate reasons for doing that including maybe you want to lower your blood pressure or lower your stress level or whatever you know that 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 would be fine but mindfulness as a practice also has buddhist origins and those there are a bunch of versions of mindfulness that have been more or less stripped of those origins and associations so if you're doing buddhist mindfulness well you shouldn't be doing that in a catholic context and if it's some kind of hybrid mindfulness that's partially it has some non-christian religious elements in it but has been partially stripped of non-christian religious elements well then that's problematic because of the non-christian religious elements that are still there also there's an element of superstition here every decade it seems like there's new some new big fad that's promoted, you know, it used to just be simple meditation, and it, then it was transcendental meditation, mm-hmm. and now it's mindfulness, and there have been other variants, too, and there's a, there's a certain element of snake oil and superstition in all this, where they you get these claims made that are way out of proportion to scientific evidence of the benefits of this stuff, and people also get the idea, oh, I'm doing something spiritual here, which is... Superstition in the proper sense, not not just believing it's going to have effects that it doesn't, but superstition in the proper sense of uh, attributing too much religious significance to an act. And so. I can't say no versions of what people call mindfulness are acceptable, but a lot of them are not acceptable. And there was a document that came out from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 1989, if I recall correctly, that was called An Instruction on Some Aspects of Christian Meditation that looks at how meditation, at least of a religious nature, we're not talking about purely physiological, let's relax and lower our blood pressure meditation, but how religious meditation should be done from a Christian perspective. We'll have a link to that. We'll also have a critique of mindfulness by someone who comes from a Buddhist background Hmm. and is not happy with the way it's being presented in Western contexts.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Brooke Kennel uh, writes, I've often wondered how a Christian should approach apparently true prophecies within a non-Christian context. I can think of two examples when the Greek oracle of Delphi said something of genuine benefit. One was during the Persian Wars when the Athenians knew Xerxes' army was on its way to sack their city. When they first petitioned the oracle about what they should do, she initially told them to flee, but when they refused to accept that answer and besieged her again, she told them to trust their wooden walls. They interpreted that to mean their ships and won the decisive uh, naval battle of Salamis. Then if Plato can be trusted, Socrates received a message from Delphi that launched his philosophical inquiry, which led to the Greek philosophical tradition that seems to have prepared the pagan world for the Christian message. I've also heard that Christian traditions hold that some of the sibyls prophesied the incarnation. I just wonder what Jimmy thinks about all this. Might God have hijacked the religious institutions of the pagan world out of love, perhaps even using them to pave the way for their salvation? Or would that be dishonest, since they would likely think they were contacting Apollo and give him praise for those moments instead of God? So this is a very interesting question. There are a number
1: of dimensions to this. One of them is God can, and this is the solution to the problem of evil, or this is the key component of the solution to the problem of evil. God will use every evil to bring about a good ultimately. So God only tolerates evils if he has a way to bring an equal or greater good out of it. And that applies to Greek religious institutions like the Oracle at Delphi. So even if so, it's true that God used various Greek institutions to prepare the Greek world for the gospel. That's definitely true. And that's something that, you know, the church fathers, for example, talk about. They refer to elements in Greek culture that helped prepare the way as seeds of the gospel that can then be germinated with Christian evangelization. And it's it's certainly possible that God could use the oracle at Delphi or or even other things like the Sybil or Socrates's little interior voice, which uh Brooke didn't mention, but Socrates claims he has if you read the Apology, he claims he has a little voice that an instinct that he sees as supernatural that guides him. God could use all those things to help prepare the way for the gospel. The question would be, did God directly intervene or did his agents directly intervene? Like, did he send an angel to tell the oracle at Delphi, say this? And that's more problematic. I would, I would be more inclined to see accurate information coming from say, the Oracle at Delphi, as being due to one of a number of different possibilities. Number one, demons, because it's always always demons. demons. (laughs) Number two, fakes, that the Oracle at Delphi was notoriously ambiguous. Like, there's the famous case where a king comes to her and says, should I attack these people? And she says, if you do, a great empire will be destroyed. And that's like, okay. that's he takes it to mean (laughs) I'm going to destroy them. But then in hindsight, no, you're the one who gets destroyed. Well, the answer is studiedly ambiguous. Uh, I think a lot of the phenomena that were attributed to the Oracle were, you know, due to hoax or not quite hoax, but they believed in this stuff. They believed the Oracle had these powers and the Oracle's imagination would be responsible even in cases where there wasn't deliberate fakery going on uh just like a lot of psychics today talk themselves into yes i'm having this real psychic impression of what's going to happen then there's the possibility that there could be aspects to human consciousness that allow us to gain information naturally about distant things or future things you know there we'll have future episodes exploring the ideas of are there really psychic abilities or or not And, you know, it's also possible there could have been some blending of supernatural, divine, or, you know, God or his agents taking a hand in some of these things. The one that in the ancient world had the most cred from a Christian perspective was the Sybil. Uh, By the way, uh, before we move on, the I should mention the Oracle at Delphi or and there were various oracles in different places, but they were highly prized in the ancient world. There was actually a war known as the Holy War fought over one of the uh, oracles. Hmm. But in terms of the Sybil, uh, there were various Sybils. They were, you know, women prophets. And if you go to the uh, Sistine Chapel. And you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, you will see the Sibyl there um, sitting alongside prophets like Isaiah and mm. so forth, because Christians knew that the Sibylline oracles contained prophecies of Christ and other things connected with the Jewish and the Christian faith. And a lot in the ancient Christian, a lot of people in the ancient Christian world said it looks like there's some kind of even though this is a pagan prophet, God is still letting her speak the truth on some of these issues. And you even find a first century reference to this. There is a a, a book that I know you've read, Dom, called The Shepherd of Hermas. Yep. By a guy named Hermas. He was a former slave in Rome, uh, writing around the year 80 AD. And he sees starts seeing visions of a woman. And then an angel dressed as a shepherd shows up and says, who do you think you've been seeing the visions of? Who's that woman you're seeing? And he says the Sibyl. And so even though he's a Christian, his first thought is that he's been seeing prophetic visions of the Sibyl. And the angel says, no, actually, it's the church. But you do have this kind of respect given in Christian circles for the Sibyl because the Sibyl prophesied various Christian and Jewish things. Now, a lot of modern scholars have looked at that, have looked at the Sibylian oracles, and I've studied them to some degree. I want to study them more, but I've been really fascinated w- through the study I have done of them. And there are clear prophecies in there of Jewish and Christian things, as well as Roman emperors like Nero, and he's going to kill his mom, and this is going to happen and stuff. Most scholars today think that actually those were written by those passages, at least, were written by Jews and Christians as a form of crypto evangelization to get pagans thinking about Jewish and Christian claims. Hmm. So uh, it's it's not viewed by modern skeptical scholars, at least, as being civils really got supernatural information about this. It's thought Christians and Jews were doing evangelization using these prophetic tracts. But that's a modern skeptical perspective. That's not the perspective that some in some in the early church had. So we should do an episode on the Sybils at some point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. All right. Uh, Adam Spacht, uh writes Hey, Jimmy, what's with the papal prophecies of St. Malachi? Did they run out now? Didn't they run out now? Or were on the last one? What kind of stock is held with these over the years and currently? Is because of St. Malachi's canonization, does this give more credence to the prophecy or is it more vague, like Nostradamus kinds of prophecy?
1: So there are several related questions there. The first one is, by some interpretations, we would now be on the last pope of St. Malachi's prophecy of the popes. St. Malachi is not the biblical Malachi. This was a figure that allegedly lived in Ireland in the Middle Ages, and uh, he wrote a list of descriptions of different popes, and these are typically cryptic. I mean, he doesn't just name them. He 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 gives a sort of description like the glory of the olive or the labor of the sun or a city in time of war or things like that. And if you they allegedly stretch from his day to the end of the world. And the last one is Peter the Roman. And by if you by the standard count, that would be Pope Francis. Well, you may notice Peter the Roman doesn't seem to have a special connection with Pope Francis. And this is a lot of. I mean, his his name is not Peter. Neither his birth name nor his regnal name is Peter. And he's not from Rome. He's from Buenos Aires. Right. So he's he's not doesn't really seem like Peter the Roman. On the other hand, some people have said that there could be a gap in the prophecies between the last one, which would be the penultimate one, which would be Pope Benedict. And the ultimate one, Peter the Roman, and so we could be living in this gap because there's a you know a textual shift in in the description. The difficulty is that we have no evidence that the historical Saint Malachy wrote this thing. It does not appear until centuries after his time. It was found around 1590, and if you do an analysis of the descriptions of the popes, they are for the most part, bang on before 1590. And then they suddenly get vague after 1590. (laughs) And it's hard to match them up with the popes. I did an analysis a few years ago of this, which we'll have a link to, where I classified the different descriptions as hits, misses or ambiguous. And before 1590, you get lots of hits. After 1590, you get lots of misses and ambiguouses. So what this looks like is a forgery that was created around 1590 to support particular interests. Mm. So I don't view the prophecy of the popes as being at all reliable. There have been people who have thought more highly of it than I do. But taking a hard nosed look at the data, it just looks like a forgery to me.
0: So Jimmy, we've gone a little over an hour now, um and uh we should probably begin to wrap things up I'll, I'll, we have a bunch more questions from patrons uh some of them sort of go over similar ground that we've already covered. We'll save all of those for our next time that we do this, so don't despair your questions are still there, and so we will still get to them um there there's a lot you guys really came up with a bunch uh this yeah. time, so uh so, so we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up here. But, Jimmy, what further resources do we have from today's show? So we'll have a link to Wikipedia's, uh, to a number of Wikipedia
1: articles, including on the Vinland map and on ancient astronauts and on post detect post contact protocols for dealing with alien life. We'll have a link to their article on the Brookings report that I mentioned. And we'll have a link to uh, the one uh, to a live science article on on similar protocols, including the one from the 1950s, the military one, Seven Steps to Contact. We'll have a link to a post on Quora about the carbon monoxide theory of Dyatlov Pass, as well as information from people who make wood-burning stoves about wood-burning stoves and carbon monoxide. (laughs) We'll have uh, information on the Tomb of Alexander the Great, on Stigmata, on the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine, on Vlad the Impaler and the Order of the Dragon on the Nephilim, on mindfulness, including that critique of mindfulness from someone coming from a Buddhist background, as well as the 1989 CDF instruction on Christian meditation and my analysis of the prophecy of St. Malachi.
0: Excellent. Well, that's it from us. I want to thank all of you, our patrons, and especially those of you who submitted questions. You can submit feedback to this show by going to patreon.com slash starquest or by visiting SQPn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leave some feedback there. You can send us an email to Mysterious at SQPN.com or send a tweet to at MYS underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Remember to like and share the episodes of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World as you listen to them on Facebook and retweet them on Twitter. And spread the news about the podcast, and please help help us to make it grow. We that's what we really do appreciate all your help with that. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Patreon.com/slash StarQuest, and eventually at Sqpn.com/slash Mysterious when we release this episode to all listeners. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken. Thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.